The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We want to turn next to Welcome Ira to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. And obviously, Fed and bond related. Now, walk us through the latest that what we've been seeing in the Treasury market and especially ahead of a number of key data reports that are coming up, as we know, when it comes to obviously the jobs report later this week, as well as that PCE indicator that's coming on Thursday. Yeah, so obviously, you, you, like you said, we have these key data points in a reasonably illiquid market time right now. Uh, you look at t this morning's data, and obviously you had the jolts data uh, missed to the downside, which is you know Fed-friendly for sure. Uh, you had consumer confidence lower, and now you have two-year yields rallying by 13 basis points. That's you know that that's not showing that that the market is uh, is liking this data, and certainly pricing out. Uh, at least a little bit of, of the hikes that we had, uh, the, the hike in November that was starting to be priced into the market. So I, I think the market's still looking for some direction. It's still looking for exactly um, you know, what, the, what the path of the U.S. economic environment is going to be and, and how that might influence the Federal Reserve and, and their actions on a, on a going forward basis. So, um, so, so I think you are going to see a lot of volatility, um, you know, 10 basis point moves in the five and, and 10 year um, sectors of it would not be a complete surprise depending on you know how weak or how strong the data is compared to expectations now we have jobs numbers coming out at the end of the week is is that the ultimate decisive bit of data or you know is it CPI what what are, what do we what's your like top data point that you're considering as we look ahead to, to kind of mid-september the next Fed meeting yeah, so, so next month's CPI report, I think, is going to be the, really the, the key to whether or not the market's going to price for a November hike. I mean, so September, I think, at this point is off the table. Uh, you keep seeing very mixed data, and that's not going to entice the Federal Reserve to, to need to increase interest rates again. Uh, but I think as we get toward, toward the September meeting where you get a new summary of economic projections, you get a new dot plot, you know, will the, what will the Fed members think they're going to hike rates to or, or cut rates to in 2024 based on changes in their economic outlook, um, that's where the, the data from now until the next meeting, I think, will be more impactful. Um, so, so the, the two data points from this, later this week is uh, the month-over-month -month PCE num numbers, particularly those core PCE numbers that, uh, that, that Jay Powell has mentioned on several occasions as being important to their outlook. So if we do get, an if we do get as expected, 0.2% on the core PCE deflator, I think that's actually a good thing because that's implying that, that inflation on a uh, trend basis is coming down. And then it's not so much the headline payrolls number, um, you know, unless it really go, gets crazy one way or the other, but the wage data, I think, is the most important piece of, uh, of Friday's payroll report uh, that I'll be focused on. So, um, so it's aggregate labor income. So we, do we continue to see you know, 0.4 month over month increases in, uh, in wages? Um, that, that's, I think, going to be key because wages are one of the things that's keeping spending as high as it is, uh, number one. And number two, it's also companies are trying to at least pass some of the higher labor costs along to consumers in the services sector. And because of that, um, the, you know, that, that is, there is a little bit of a wage push inflation regardless of whether or not members of the Fed will admit it or not. Ira, what about something else that's going on in the background when we're talking about the balance sheet and the runoff there? Because we talk so much about when it comes to interest rates, but what about that aspect of it and when investors are concerned about lack of liquidity in the marketplace? Yeah, so, so I don't think that the lack of liquidity right now is, is really an issue. There's still uh, a lot of reserves above what the banking sector needs for uh, for, for liquidity purposes and, and to, to meet capital requirements. So, so the way that I look at the, the Fed's balance sheet and how small it needs to get or can get, 
uh, really has to do with how banks uh, are complying with different Basel capital regulations. Um, so the single biggest one is the liquidity coverage ratio. And assuming that banks get down to, uh, to, to just above their uh, minimum requirements for those capital ratios, we, we estimate that, uh, that the balance sheet, that the Fed balance sheet could decline about another $600 billion, $700 billion or so. Um, you know, others use aggregate data. We, we don't think that that's the best way to look at it because the, 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 the challenge with liquidity in the bond market and the repurchase agreement market and all of the things that created the repo hiccup in September of 2019, it could be a single institution that doesn't have enough uh, liquidity that winds up switching us over the tipping point and, and requiring more reserves to be added to the system. And that's what you saw in September of 2019. Um, so, you know, once that gets tripped, I think that's a signal that the Federal Reserve is probably going to think about uh, reducing its balance sheet or reducing quantitative tightening uh, or even ending it and allowing the market to kind of catch up to the new liquidity environment w w that we have. All right, I want to get your take on how housing prices are going to play into the Federal Reserve's calculus. Um, Jay Powell was talking about how he sees shelter costs coming down, but you know we got data out this morning, the FHFA house price index rising again, 0.3%. Admittedly, this was a little bit less than anticipated, um, but you know, prices across all 20 major market areas surveyed by S&P Dow Jones indices says prices are going up. I mean, does this play into the calculus, or is this such a structural problem that uh, the Fed just kind of puts it aside? Yeah, yeah, well, I think the Federal Reserve is, you know, certainly looking at, uh, you know, the cost of everything. I think housing, um, it, it, housing obviously is important to the Federal Reserve, but it's only one component. It's it's really the the cost of housing. So things like rental rents and owner's equivalent rent that make up the uh, the, the measures that we look at for. Um, for, for how much uh, housing's going up. And interestingly, if you think about, even if house prices had stayed constant uh, and you wound up with mortgage rates going up toward 7%, which Erica Edelberg, who's our mortgage strategist here at Bloomberg Intelligence, looks at uh, every day, um, it, it, you'd still have higher rents, right? So it would still cost more to rent a house because uh, you know the new mortgages that you receive are are going to be higher. But but that takes a long time to filter into the overall economy. I think the the bigger issue with what's going on now in the housing market is this lack of supply, right? People with very low mortgage rates, people with mortgage rates well below four percent, they're not going to be refinancing and looking for a new home unless they have to relocate for their for their jobs. So because of that. Um, you just don't have a lot of supply on the market, and that's one of the things right. that's driving home prices a, a bit higher. Um, although that right. has stabilized quite a lot when you look at the month-on-month. -month all right, Ira, it's great always getting your perspective on all things. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I know this is something you've been watching very closely, Simone, when it comes to what's been happening with these pharmaceutical giants and the ruling when it does come to President Biden's push to bargain with these drug makers to lower the cost of Medicare. So I want to get straight to Dwayne Wright, senior government analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us to talk the drug pricing negotiations. Dwayne, thanks so much for joining us. We knew some of this was coming. Walk us through what the latest news is when it comes to this. Uh, yes, we knew this was coming. Uh, the IRA passed uh, 2022, and the government had a deadline of September 1st to release the list of 10 high expenditure drugs. Those drugs would be subject to uh, government negotiation. In other words, the government would uh, negotiate prices for those drugs that would be anywhere from 25 to 60 percent lower than they are now and those prices would become effective beginning January 1, 2026. We're starting with a list of 10. 
that that number of drugs will go up from 10 to 15 in 2027 and 2028, and there will be 20, 20 drugs per year thereafter. Dwayne, why these specific drugs, do you think? The law uh, requires that uh, Medicare focuses on these drugs. So uh, we're not focused on price alone. Uh, we're focused on those drugs that have high expenditures. So you may see some drugs on this list that are low-cost drugs, but they're used by quite a number of people. So Eliquis, for example, uh, the data CMS provided this morning shows that 3 million people used Eliquis, but you have another drug, Stellara, uh, from Johnson & Johnson, uh, 22,000 people use the drug, but it's very expensive. So uh, Democrats, when they came up with this bill, really wanted to focus on those drugs uh, that are, are really uh, high-cost, high-expenditure drugs, not just those that are high-priced drugs. When you're looking across the spectrum, especially in Washington, was this more of a broad-based issue when you're talking about Republicans and Democrats, or was it more geared toward the Democratic side? This has been a Democratic goal since the Clinton administration. So for the last 20 years, uh, Democrats, uh, or longer, Democrats have been trying to find a way to inject the government or provide a government role in price setting for these drugs. Now, they've failed. And in fact, uh, when the Part D law passed in 2003, there was a, an explicit prohibition against the government uh, dictating or setting prices. And that's largely because when that law passed, it was passed by a Republican Congress and signed by a Republican president. Now, granted, Democrats voted for that bill, uh, but it did set up the framework, but it also included uh, more of a free market uh, approach to price setting. Over the past couple of years, Democrats tried to advance similar legislation but failed because they didn't have enough control. Now that they had uh, the full control of Congress and the White House, they were able to pass some version of what they wanted to do in terms of uh, injecting government, uh, a government role for price setting. Well, the argument from pharmaceutical companies against, call it negotiations, call it price setting, has always been, you know, they spend a lot of money uh, developing these drugs. They feel that they deserve the monopoly that they get uh, in terms of selling these drugs to uh, consumers. D does this really put a weight on the kind of innovation that they will do? Do you think that's a long-term shift, or is this something that these pharma companies are going to complain about for a while, but you know it's not really going to affect their overall behavior? I, I think there's some weight to their argument. Uh, it's definitely going to change the way they pursue drugs moving forward. Uh, they're going to think about what kind of indications they come forward with first, uh, um, they're going to look at some of those, uh, hot, uh, those, those areas where commercial, commercialization prospects are better. They'll maybe slow down those indications where the commercializa commercialization aspects are probably lower. Uh, keep in mind, though, that these drugs uh, that the administration released today, the list released today, these are a list of 10 drugs that have been on the market for at least seven years. Uh, they don't have a generic competition or a biosimilar competition. Um, and, and so uh, we're really talking about those high-cost drugs uh, where there isn't an alternative. Um, and so there will still be an opportunity for these manufacturers to perhaps raise the prices when they go to the market for that first year. In fact, the Gov uh, Congressional Budget Office, which scores legislation, in other words, how much is it going to cost, how much is it going to save, anticipates that uh, pharmaceutical companies will pursue higher launch prices to make up for the fact that in some of those outer years, later years, they won't be able to uh, charge the prices that they would otherwise charge. What other potential legislation could be on the horizon? In the drug pricing space, yes. uh, I think we're looking less at uh, legislation targeting drug drug manufacturers potentially targeting pharmacy benefit managers, and they were left out of the Inflation Reduction Act for a handful of policy and technical reasons when Democrats passed the bill. Uh, we could see as part of that how PBMs are profiting from 
rebate dollars, rebates they get from manufacturers that are supposed to go to health plans or even the employees or in the individuals. We could see some additional regulatory efforts by this administration as it relates to truck pricing. They, uh, the Biden administration released a white paper earlier this year focused on uh, some other avenues uh, which it can use to, to lower the price of some drugs. Uh, they're targeting those drugs approved through an accelerated approval pathway, which is a pathway that allows manufacturers to get drugs on the market faster. Now they right. have a level of uh, safety and efficacy data, but in many cases, these accelerated approval drugs still go through uh, some additional confirmatory trials to prove yeah. that they actually work. So we could see some more regulatory efforts there. Right. Yeah. Dwayne, thanks so much for joining us. That's Dwayne Wright, Senior Government Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We want to get straight to our next guest, Elliot Stein, Senior Litigation Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. At Simone, you know we were talking about the U.S. court paving the way for the first Bitcoin ETF in this grayscale ruling. If you're looking at the reaction in ETFs here, or actually if you're just looking specifically in Bitcoin, it's up almost 6%. So now it's trading above the 27,000 level. Uh, I want to bring in Elliot Stein. So Elliot, walk us through the latest news that we got from this. What do we know so far? Yeah, so this morning we got a, a decision from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the court that was hearing Grayscale's challenge to the SEC's rejection of Grayscale's application for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, the SEC rejected it last year. They rejected that application. Grayscale sued. The case was argued in March. Uh, you know, um, uh, people on Twitter in particular and investors, um, crypto investors interested in Bitcoin and GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin price, have been waiting for this decision. Uh, anxiously for some time, and we finally got it today. And the, the court uh, vacated the SEC's rejection, um, saying that uh, the SEC's decision to reject the application was arbitrary and capricious and wasn't well reasoned, um, and sort of left it there. So next steps are a little unclear, and I haven't even read the decision yet. Um, but that's where we are right now. Um, Elliot, more broadly speaking, I mean, what's the thinking on the part of the judges? Um, you know, they, they had grilled, I believe, uh, the SEC about its decision back in the hearing on the case on March. What's their thinking? What's their rationale? Do you think? Yeah, the rat. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean, didn't mean to cut you off. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the rationale is that the SEC previously approved uh, two uh, Bitcoin futures ETFs. Um, and so, you know, Grayscale's argument was that the SEC was treating similar products differently and arbitrarily uh, because the risk of uh, manipulation and fraud is essentially the same in both the futures Bitcoin market and the spot Bitcoin market. Um, and so if the SEC was concerned about uh, fraud in the spot Bitcoin market, that didn't really make much sense because it had already approved these futures Bitcoin ETFs. And so as a result, to treat similar products similarly, they had to, also, after having already approved the futures Bitcoin ETFs, they had to then approve the spot Bitcoin ETF. And when we're looking at Bitcoin, we did mention up 5%. What do you think the reaction to investors to this? Because this is something that has been really highly anticipated for months now. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that reaction seems to make sense, right? I mean, this, uh, you know, this uh, does seem like it's uh, another step on the path to getting spot Bitcoin ETFs approved, which will just make it easier for investors, both retail and institutional, I think, to uh, um, get exposure uh, to Bitcoin. And another interesting um, number to look at is the discount for GBTC, you know, the, the, the discount meaning that the shares in GBTC were trading um, at the time the case was argued, roughly 40% lower than the value of the underlying Bitcoin that the trust held. Right now, I'm looking at that number and it's about 10.6%. So that discount has dropped dramatically. Yeah, it dropped dramatically just in the past couple, uh, since the last close, it looks like. Um, I want to bring in here, we have Matt Siegel, the head of digital assets research at Van Eck. Um, Matt, 
Give me your thoughts as well. We've just been discussing this uh, with Elliot Stein from Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, what's the broader impact that we expect to see from this decision moving forward? Does this just become the first ETF of many? I think the broader impact is that the government has has brought uh, a range of lawsuits against this industry and using their enforcement stick to try to chill activity stateside. And now we've seen the second major court case that the SEC has lost in, in, in as many months, Ripple, and now this Grayscale. So uh, we think the tide is turning that when the facts play out in court, uh, the law is... Uh, more ambiguous than the SEC is making it, that their logic in denying these uh, applications was haphazard, um, illogical, and the judge was very, was very clear in, in rejecting that logic. So it's a vindication for the industry. Matt, we do know the SEC has cited its opposition when it comes to these prior proposals for Bitcoin ETFs and for these spot price crypto exchanges. What other moves could the SEC have from here? Well, it's important to note that the judge in this case cannot approve the Bitcoin ETF. So the judge has sent the case back to the SEC to revise their logic. Uh, so we'll see, you know, if they capitulate or if they present new logic. But uh, you know, the best case here, best best, uh, the base case here is that the chances of a spot Bitcoin ETF have risen uh, quite substantially. Um, it will take a fair bit of logistics to get all these applications in order. We'll see if they are all allowed to go effective at the same time or if there is some privileged positions that are that are given. Now, is the thinking that there really would be a substantial amount of inflows into these sort of ETFs, uh, if provided that they can move forward, that, that this would suddenly bring in the retail investors that we've been missing? I don't think just retail, I think institutional. Like the, the, the ETF structure is time proven way to get exposure uh, in a cost effective and liquid manner to all types of commodities and securities. So, you know, this could be the biggest ETF launch ever. Uh, and we think both institutions and retail investors will like the exposure to regulated custodians that it will provide at good spreads. Uh, lots of different entities will want to hold this product, we think. Elliot, I want to bring you back into this conversation and get your thoughts on what the timetable could potentially be if this does come back into the SEC's hands and where this could move forward. Because obviously, like you mentioned earlier, there's still a lot of uncertainty here, right? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, before we even get there, the SEC, if they want, can ask the full D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals called an, uh, uh, called an en banc proceeding. Um, they can ask for that. Um, that that's uh, up to the court to grant. It's not automatic. It's discretionary. But, uh, you know, that, that would be, like in terms of the litigation, the first step for the SEC. They would have, I believe, 60 days um, to ask for that. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, they could also ask for a Supreme Court review, although I doubt that you know, I really doubt it's going to go to the Supreme Court. Um, but then, you know, putting the court aside, yeah, then, it's, like I said, you know, it's um, it's a little unclear what happens next because the court, um, you know, didn't order the SEC, right, to do anything beyond vacating the previous rejection. It, the court can't and didn't order the SEC to approve an application. So um, it's a little unclear what happens next. Interestingly, you know, I think Grayscale sent a letter at some point to the SEC asking the SEC to sort of just approve all the various applications at once. I think, think you know, um, knowing that this kind of decision was going to come down and fearing that it might sort of be at the end of the line at this point in terms of, you know, having to go through the application process again, whereas, you know, up until this decision, it was sort of at the front of the line. Matt, your thoughts. I mean, do you think the SEC will just sort of throw in the towel here, say, okay, uh, Bitcoin ETF, let's, or Grayscale uh, ETF, let's go. It's a tough call. Uh, this is political uh, set at the very high, uh, top of the administration with the president's executive order to use all, for the agencies to use all tools to crack down on this industry. So uh, like, 
be curious to see what type of logic they would employ because we haven't found uh, any of it uh, particularly compelling. Um, you know, it could end with Gary Gensler out of the SEC. That is not uncommon for chairpersons to leave after they've faced embarrassing losses. There have now been two in two months. Hmm. So we only have about a minute left, but I wanted to get both of y'all's final thoughts here. I'll start off with you, Elliot, as far as the next immediate thing that you're going to be watching for on this. Uh, a couple of things, I guess. Um, well, the, first of all, I think there's a bunch of other um, spot Bitcoin ETF applications um, that's sort of not, you know, in the courts, right? That's with the SEC. So we'll see if the SEC um, uh, punts on those further or if they grant them. Um, and if they grant them, you know, if they grant a whole bunch in mass or just uh, do them one at a time. Um, and then it'll be interesting to see any statements from the SEC as to whether they're going to ask for um, right. bond review. Um, and also sort of like what the next steps would be just in terms of the grayscale application if they go back to the SEC. Right. Yeah, Matt, very quickly. Yeah, what are you, what are you watching? Like 20 seconds left. Well, let's watch Ethereum now, right? Because it does <laughs> seem the SEC is poised to approve uh, uh, Ethereum futures ETFs. According to this ruling, they would then have to approve spot. So uh, I'm sure you tend to be on the lookout for those filings. All right. Matt Siegel from Vanek, along with Elliot Stein, senior litigation analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, walking us through what's going on with this U.S. court paving the way for the first Bitcoin ETF. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I want to talk about a name um well i'll just give you a sense of what's happened to these shares uh, in the past couple of wild days. ride wild ride okay last tuesday up over 100 percent uh up over 30 percent on thursday 40 percent on friday now we're down uh just about 30 percent today the name VinFast auto an unprofitable thinly traded and uh VFS stock is the yes ticker. um it went just went to, just made its debut as a SPAC listing on August fifteenth, uh, and now is the world's third most valuable car company. I don't know if that holds up given the the fall today, but it's something like that. Um, yeah, it's bigger than the market cap if you're combining GM and Ford. It's nuts, a little nuts. Um, but to sort this out for us, we have. Uh, Stephanie Brindley, she's Associate Director of Research and Analysis at S&P Global. She's going to tell us what is going on with this company <laughs> and the wild ride that we have seen in stocks over the past, or in the stock over the past couple of days. Good morning. How are you guys today? Good. Thank you. Thanks for joining Good. us. Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, VinFast is a, is a really interesting um, company to watch. They've just started to launch in the U.S. and Canada. Um, what if you, you kind of look at the background of that company, the founder has has a mission of, of creating a manufacturing um, base um, out of Vietnam and 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 becoming growing their own auto company. Part of doing that includes manufacturing targets for the U.S. and for being in the U.S. and, and Europe and in China as well. Um, it's, a, it's a very long term look for him. Um, and what you're seeing, too, from from that company is. Is somebody with a with a will and a mission that that kind of goes beyond what happens in the next two or three years. So this is they a really want to build. Right. This is a Vietnamese EV maker. Give us some context yep. into the space of how this company. Obviously, when you're thinking about the context, we were just talking about this, Simone and I, having a market cap larger than GM and Ford. But when you're looking at this particular industry, where it sits at, and how it's been able to sort of get to where it is at this point. It's it's interesting looking at, at at market caps, which isn't isn't 100% my area. But electric vehicles, aside from from Tesla, and it took them 10 or 10 or 15 years to get there, aren't profitable. So so we've got we've got market caps that are that are betting that ultimately these vehicles will be because today they're not yet. And is that wrong? Um, is it wrong? Oh, 
Jeez, that's a good question. <laughs> but, you know, again, we're really talking long term, uh, really long term, because for for the vehicles, EVs to be profitable, they will be eventually. Part of it is scale. Part of it is is a broader part, piece of the market. Part of it is all the regulations that are driving various markets to push right. EVs over internal combustion engines, but we're talking about a 10 to 15 to 20 year transition. We aren't talking about something that's happening in five. So a couple decades. We'll see a lot more growth in five, but we aren't going to get to an EV dominant world. It's it's a long, long term vision for for electric vehicles being profitable and being um, in transitioning from from EVs or from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. And VinFast is in this space trying to make a name for itself and trying to build an industry for its for its country as well. Yeah, I guess the distinguishing factor that you know so much of the exposure is uh, to Asia. Though you know, admittedly, there are players in China uh, that could potentially get in the way. I suppose. I mean, we had Neo out with its earnings today, um, but just I guess the idea that it's in Vietnam um, is something a little bit special. It's, it's a little bit special. I mean, they're younger um, as a company. They're younger. Um, they're, they're learning as they go. And you see that in um, changes that they've made and how they're going to market in the U.S. and in other places. Uh, they Initially, they were talking about a battery leasing process where you would, you would basically lease by the vehicle but lease the battery. And how many miles a year that you drove would impact that lease price. And the idea was that after the battery got to maybe 70% usage, you would swap it out and take away the concern from a consumer about how long your battery's gonna last because you'd lease it and they would put a new one in and you mm. would pay your lease and it would go. That concept uh, is, is proving a little bit difficult for American consumers to kind of get their heads around. And so they've stepped away from that. Initially, the pricing was gonna be a, a, a little bit lower. So the idea was you had luxury at a, at a at a more affordable price, but their prices that, that came out for the for the VF9 are are really on par with with um, sort of the premium and lower lower luxury, um, and so they're not really coming in at at a at a more accessible price point. They're really in the mix with everybody else that's out there. So they keep making changes as they go and as they learn how they're going to come to market. Initially, they were focusing on direct selling. Now they're talking about having distributors and dealers um, in the U.S. and Canada. So that all of those changes really reflect uh, a company that's willing to to evolve and and find its way, because there is there's kind of a map and there isn't really. They have to they have to find their own space, and I think that's going to make it complicated and it's going to make it a rough ride for some points but also it's what they're going to need to do yeah, in order to find their space. I would think it'd be challenging, you know, this is such a cash flow intensive sort of business to just be kind of uh, changing tune all the, all the time. It, it is, and they haven't changed as much about the product in and of itself. It's, it's more about how they're taking it to market and the product is, the investment there is, is improving it, making it better. The first, the first reviews from US media weren't fantastic. On the car, it needed some more work to to get there, but relative to their funding and and their ability, um, they they are they're still related to Vin Group, and and, and Vin Group has money, hmm. and the founder has access to money. So, uh, I believe that he's put sort of a cap and said, "This is as far as I'm going to go for the moment in terms of investing." Um, but that's one of the strengths that it has is one way or another, there the Vin Group can find a way to give VinFast more money if this is what they're really dedicated to achieving. And again, you know, when you when you have a company that has that kind of will and that kind of mission, different things happen. That's where Tesla sort of started. Tesla had a mission more than, a, yeah, of course you want to make money. Of course you want to be profitable and successful, but the mission was about getting people off fossil fuels. VinFast has a mission of creating an automotive manufacturing industry within Vietnam and growing and becoming a global player. So you've, you've got a mission-driven company, and, and along the way, they make some different choices. Who do you um, consider to be yeah. some of their main rivals and competitors? It really, it's, I mean, it's everyone. Right now, they're, they're so unknown um, around for U.S. customers, and they've brought over a few thousand vehicles. Mostly, they're in California right now. So they really have to break through kind of everyone really they should be more um going against kind of a volkswagen brand 
uh, maybe a Buick brand, Chevrolet would be more of the brands that they should be going against. Um, but right now it's really anyone, it's everyone just to get, and we're having the conversation now, they're popping up in the news a lot more, but there's a distance between this conversation and a consumer trying to, to go find one on the street. Mm. Through, I believe, June, they only had 137 registered in the United States. Right. That speaks to availability and awareness. Um, with respect to awareness, I mean, does it hurt a company to be identified, you know, with these sort of wild swings in the stock price? Or is that something that, you know, investors can kind of... Uh, look us look askance uh, sorry look aside from and just quickly here because we only have about 30 seconds uh, you know for car for car buyers i'm not sure how much it, of a difference it makes for investors they're, they're looking at, at things a little bit differently and i'm not going to predict what they're going to do sure. for a car buyer i'm not sure that it makes a huge difference they need to have faith that the company is going to be there that's probably what the car buyer needs most from a new car company that's so interesting. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for taking us through. I, I'll be honest, I've seen the major swings in this company's uh, share price. They've been wild. They've been exciting. Um, but I haven't known exactly what they do or why or why someone would buy a VinFast vehicle, nor, nor less that it's you know part of much, a much larger uh, conglomerate. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'll go straight to our next guest, Fernando Valley. He's a senior analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. He's joining us in studio, which is exciting. Always Love great that. to have people here with us to talk with us about the impact of possible strikes at Chevron in Australia and obviously other global energy markets and pressures and issues. Let's start off with what's going on with Chevron. Kind of set the scene for us about what's happening here and what we need to know. Sure. So uh, there are two big projects that Chevron is the operator in Western Australia, Gorgon and Wheatstone. Uh, they're very large projects. Uh, they contribute about call it $15 billion in total revenues a year at today's prices for LNG. Uh, Chevron has, call it about half of that uh, in ownership of between those two, those two uh, projects. So it's, they're very significant projects uh, and they contribute a lot to the overall energy security and they are exported to both Asia and uh, excess cargoes can be exported to Europe as well. Well, we've seen some weird moves in gas prices uh, back and forth, essentially reacting to this. Y you know, the thing that I wonder, given that we had all these concerns about a potential energy crisis in Europe last year, but supplies like storage facilities are pretty close to full at this point, if yeah. not completely full. Um, how does LNG, how do LNG issues in Australia um, factor in, we're still at end of summer, you know, we're not at the key heating season. How does that play into what we may see, um, yeah. given these production challenges? Yes, sure. I think it's, you know, if you know the story of the cicada that uh, prepares for winter, this is what we do now. <laughs> and this is the filling season when we prepare for the winter ahead of time. And uh, we ha are, as you mentioned, close to the, the technical limits on inventories in Europe. Um, the issue is that those technical inventories don't get us through the winter if it is a normal to cold winter. So if the, the if we have demand for that, uh, we will drain them and then the prices will impact that. So if there's a shortage on LNG, um, that will affect it because we can't rely on those uh, storage alone, especially considering uh, Belgium has closed all their nuclear, Germany has closed all their nuclear, and we no longer have supply coming from Europe, from Russia rather, even in the case of a dire need. So it's my understanding that, the, that a potential strike could begin as, as early as September 7th, I believe, or is it maybe the uh, September 7th? Um, but, you know, there is time between which, uh, between now and when Europe needs to start drawing down its supplies. I mean, if you didn't, okay, if you saw a strike, for example, uh, it ha goes on for a week. Um, how much of an impact of, is that to Europe's energy situation? To Europe is, uh, will be nearly none. Uh, it will be more of an impact to the owners of the, those projects. Uh, you, you can't really store LNG that easily, so it needs to be regasified, and as we said, near technical limits. So it's not important as of now. The, what I think it gives you 
is two factors. First, uh, you're seeing cost inflation, and cost inflation is here to stay, and that will impact not just energy, but that will impact everything that depends on energy, i.e. the whole world and all of our economy. And the, the second part is uh, the, the frailty of our supply chain uh, on, on the energy side. So again, the, the strikes, uh, they, they are also going to keep the, the assets running. It doesn't require a lot of people to, to do it. But the strikes show that A, energy costs are still going to go up because our lifting costs, the costs to get it off the ground, are going up as, as well as labor. And then B, we, are, uh, we, we have lost a lot of the redundancy that gives us the energy security and stability that we, we require. When you talk about energy costs going up, obviously my ears are going to perk up because covering Federal Reserve and macro and all things when it comes to obviously inflation, what that could impact for the economy. How much, when you're looking at your space with energy, do you think that could translate into maybe some more broader issues when you're talking about inflation and what obviously central banks are trying to fight at this point? I think that's the central tenet of our case in oil, because we think OPEC is essentially trying to fight the Fed uh, by raising prices and by creating the supply shortage and everything the central banks are trying to fight against, the inflation that you mentioned. And uh, we're seeing uh, gasoline prices in the U.S. much higher, over 370 on average, uh, a gallon in the, uh, right now, and that all will impact our uh, the inflation metrics. Remember, energy is part of the core, is very central to everything that we do. Um, we think ultimately the demand side will win, which is what the Fed wants, right. uh, and we're seeing things break, especially in China and their real estate, and that will impact uh, oil prices and to us, that's the determinant factor for the second half of the year. Over mm. the long term, we see a shortfall of supply, but in the in the meantime, the Fed is likely to win. They have a much bigger balance sheet than OPEC. Yeah, it's, at it's, what point, sorry to cut you, I was just curious as far as when we'll see it translate into some of these CPI numbers. I know Anna Wong over at Bloomberg Economics is thinking that potentially if we're looking at the month over month core numbers, uh, obviously that strips out food and energy, but if you're taking some of that in with energy, potentially it could tick higher here. Yeah, I think uh, if you just think about the, the pass-through rate, it takes about 30 to 45 days for oil to get to refined products, and then it will take mm. another couple of months. So it could be anywhere between three to six months for it to really have an impact. You talk about OPEC fighting the Fed. Um, one of the ways I guess they're trying to do this is Saudi Arabia um, has some voluntary cuts in play, um, but it looks, it, it looks like they're now considering or we're wondering if they're considering extending those for another month um when would we get some sort of decision there what kind of immediate impacts if any would it have i think limited uh short-term impacts you're seeing massive drawdowns in u.s inventories and saudi extended through september so they would probably have to give you an update in the next two to three weeks if they're going to extend through october um but ultimately the price of oil is telling you we don't really care about supply we care about demand we care about Evergrande we care about uh, US economic activity we care about Europe and I we again that's where we think will set oil prices for the remainder of the year. How much does seasonality also factor into it when you think about the fall obviously you have different spectrums within energy but where you think potentially that pattern could fall there? Well, on the oil side, mostly gasoline margins tend to come down. Uh, there's a seasonal effect because our busy season is during the summer. Uh, we're starting to see that now. Um, that may help affordability, but uh, crack spreads are less than 30% of the overall price of gasoline. So oil is the foremost impact. Um, and then on the on the natural gas side, it's quite the opposite. We think we're going to to the crux of the, the issue, the, 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 this, the winter. And as a reminder, this past winter was the warmest in 50 years in the Northern Hemisphere. So Oof. if we have a normal winter, that could really spell trouble for not just natural gas, but diesel. We use a lot of diesel for heating in, in New England, for example. Hmm. Yeah, interesting, because natural gas prices have been so pressured for such a long time um, in the United States, whereas the European picture uh, is just a little bit uh, different. And I should mention today, oil um, prices up uh, a little bit on both WTI as well as Brent, up about half a percent each. Yeah, Fernando Valley, Senior Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us in studio to talk about the latest impact of possible strikes at Chevron in Australia. Always a pleasure chatting with you, Fernando. So thanks so much for joining Simone and myself this morning.
You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We have talked so much about the jolt state of this morning, consumer confidence, but also, according to the latest Case-Shiller data, U.S. home prices were flat over the 12 months that did just end in June, and then also prices are up at an annualized rate of just over 5% in 2023. But the catch there, the rate shock over the past year has resulted in just two months of year-over-year home price decline so far, if you can imagine that, Simone. So I want to bring in our next guest, Molly Basil, Principal Economist at CoreLogic, joining us on Zoom to discuss the latest findings in CoreLogic's Case-Shiller Home Price Index. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Walk us through this latest data that you found. Yeah, so our uh, Case-Shiller Index in June saw that prices were even from a year ago. But as you alluded to, uh, you know, while a zero change from a year ago doesn't sound like a big deal, it's really signaling a market shift because that comes off of a few months of declines in year-over-year prices. So we're seeing prices go even and we expect that they'll uh, gain a little bit through the end of the year. Yeah, where are you seeing this trend uh, most pronounced? I should also should point out, I, I, I know we have a radio audience here, but I'm looking at our Case-Shiller Index. We are like almost exactly the same level that we were in, a, in June of 2022, and that was a high on the chart. So um, where, where were we seeing most of this strength, Molly? Yeah, so places like you might not expect, places that hadn't seen large increases in the past, Chicago, Cleveland, though I'm going to throw Miami in there that that has seen some large increases, just areas that were um, had had lower increases, but also were uh, relatively cheaper than the rest of the country. You know, we're seeing the um, strength there, but we're still seeing weaknesses in parts of the country that saw really outsized gains in 2022, like Denver, Phoenix, um, and San Francisco and Seattle. We know that tight inventory was clearly an issue well before the pandemic. Which particular regions across the country or when it comes to home buyers trying to battle it out to try and find some of these houses are having it harder more so than others? You know, it's really a nationwide phenomenon. And you can think of a, a mortgage rates are really what's driving that. You've got the majority, uh, probably about 95 or more percent of Uh, current owners have a mortgage rate that is really well below what the current rate is. Uh, So they just aren't willing to give up their mortgage rates unless they have to, and they're not putting their homes on the market. So that that's really hitting the entire country. What, what I'm curious about is how much will that benefit home builders, which really were struggling after the housing crisis. But when you're thinking about, especially those stocks have been on a tear this year with those anticipation from portfolio managers that they're going to continue to have to build there. Uh, but what about the dynamic when you're looking at particular builders, say maybe like a D.R. Horton or Lennar, maybe they're catering to a particular type of income demographic, whereas what about maybe lower income households? Well, one of the things that the builders have going for them that's that's helping uh, what you said to have their um, stocks on a tear is they're able to to buy down mortgage rates for buyers. So they have some flexibility there and can charge buyers a lower rate where, you know, uh, resales, you're just not going to get that same phenomenon. Yeah, I think uh, you look at Lennar, DR Horton, they're offering five, five and a half percent 30 year fixed rates. I mean, and then and then you look at the the uh, average Freddie Mac rate for a 30 year fixed is seven point two three last week. Uh, It's just nutty. I mean, I I wonder if there is any inconsistency in that sort of data just because so much of the purchasing is really happening in the new home front rather than the existing home. You know, should we believe the seven point two three rate that we're we're seeing Molly uh, yeah I think when they're reporting those rates that's the what they are generally offering uh, it's not necessarily what people are taking up so um, that's the rate that's offered out there and if builders are able to buy that down by one two percentage points it sounds like then uh, they're gonna uh, gain a relatively a large share of this market you know what also surprises me is just how much household formation there is that these people feel that they need to take advantage of um, or just need to go and, and shell out for these seven plus percent um, fixed mortgage. What, what do you watch for there? Any, any trends you, you can tell us about across um, the people that just are simply making that decision to go buy homes? 
Well, the thing is, uh, while we do have these really high mortgage rates, you know, what's driving that? That's inflation. And what's helping drive up inflation? But um, really um, great job growth. And uh, that's why you see people who are still willing to go out there and buy homes at these mortgage rates. You know, if they're able to find what they want, where they want it, they could see that mortgage rates will uh, most likely come down in the next couple of years. And, you know, we keep talking about the 30 year fixed rate, but, you know, they might be opting for an, an adjustable rate mortgage, uh, which would keep their monthly payments down as well. What's the level when you're looking at the rates, whether you're looking at 15, 30 year here, as far as when you think it might be a potential breaking point for Americans? Uh, I, I, a lot of them are at that breaking point now. I mean, we've seen that's part of the reason why home prices were so weak uh, last year uh, in through most of 2022 and into 2023. Um, that's that has to do with the high mortgage rates when somebody's trying to get in and, uh, you know, previously when rates were around 3%, right. you know, housing was pretty affordable, uh, even though you had home prices shooting up. But, you know, that just all came to a to a halt last year when mortgage rates started going up. You know, it, it was interesting to hear Jay Powell talking about how he expects shelter costs to fall. Um, and, you know, even though a lot of this is rents, if you have high mm-hmm. home prices, you're going to have higher rents, right? Or, or is there something exactly. I'm not seeing here? <laughs> well, so that does, you know, that does get into a kind of a technical detail of um, of the way inflation's measured. And that is that, there's also a lag, right? With, that's right. That's right. That's prices. The, Exactly. There's about a one year lag. So we we do uh, measure rents as well at CoreLogic. And we saw rents coming down about a year ago. And you are now starting to see that shelter uh, index start to come down. So they're, they're, they know that those de- those decreases from last year are going to flow in through the inflation numbers this year. But it's not necessarily good news for people who want to go out and rent an apartment. <laughs> no, just because you saw things come down year to year. Uh, there's still a quite a bit um, from from 2020. So we're not, you know, with home prices coming, you know, seeing declines last year, rent saw some declines last year, you, they're just not going to get down to that level we saw before the pandemic. So we only have about a minute left, but when you're looking at this latest data from you that you have with home prices, Chicago still remained in the top spot there. Why is that? You just have some, it's like, you see in the ones the places fall off that had the really outsized gains last year and you're seeing the the metros on there that just keep plugging away at the kind of relatively moderate rate of four to five percent so it's more that everyone else is falling off than they're seeing the resurgence all right molly basil principal economist at core logic joining us on zoom to discuss the latest findings in that core logic case shiller home price index it's always a pleasure speaking with you molly Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.